You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast. Joining me today is my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. So we got to discussing different ideas for the show. And one thing that we came up with is getting an in-depth conversation on an individual species and, and so we're going to launch these as a series of shows. Um, but Mike and I have come up with a list of these species that we're going to do this season. And we're going to kick it off. And I think it's very timely for, you know, September mention here. We're going to kick it off with blue-winged teal. Mike, give a, just a brief introduction of the blue-winged teal. Sure. Be happy to. It is an exciting species to talk about. It's really, uh, it's one of the most unique certainly one of the most unique dabbling ducks that we have. Um, There are obviously quite a few species of ducks across the entire duck spectrum that are pretty cool and have some uniquenesses to them. But within our dabbling duck group, the blue-winged teal kind of stands out because of several unique traits, and we'll get into those as we work through this. And I'll, I'll, I'll start here just with the the taxonomy, we've spoken about this, I think, on maybe a few episodes prior to this, uh, talking about how some of the closest relatives to blue wings are cinnamon teal and northern shovelers. These three ducks are uh, in the genus spatula or spatula, uh, however you prefer to pronounce that. Uh, blue wing teal is taxonomic specific kind of genus and species is sp- spatula discourse. Um, it we're, and in terms of appearance, it's a rather small duck. It's about a pound. The mm-hmm. female male and female both weigh in at about a pound. And let's kind of contrast that with the weight of a mallard. Mallard, you're looking at about two to three pounds, depending on what time of year and whether you're talking about male or female. But, you know, it's uh, so that kind of gives you a size reference there. In terms of appearance, we don't want to go into too much detail on this because we're not very good at painting mental images. You yeah, know, I think but, we're going to have to do a video for that one. Yeah, but uh, the, obviously the most striking appearance feature of male blue-winged teal when they're in their breeding plumage is, mm-hmm. of course, that slate blue-gray head and then that white crescent, half-moon crescent. That's a absolutely gorgeous bird uh, when they're in their breeding plumage, and then of course the distinctive blue shoulder patch uh, that they that they retain year round, mm-hmm. obviously. So, well, where exactly you know we can go ahead and start off with just like the distribution 
okay. of these birds. And, you know, you mentioned they are specifically a breeding, North America breeding bird, which makes them unique. Explain why that is. Well, they are, uh, like when we look across the the spectrum of ducks, there are some that occur on multiple continents. Mallards, obviously, is a classic example there, but but um, even green-winged teal, although it's, you know, it's maybe a separate species or subspecies in, in a different continent, but the blue-winged teal breeds only in North America, save probably a few random exceptions somewhere or another. Now, their distribution during the non-breeding season certainly carries them into South America, mm-hmm. Central and South America, but from a breeding standpoint, you're only going to find them in, in North America. Um, so, they're pretty cool in that regard. And they're also, you know, one thing that we've talked about, we talk a lot about around here, um, how reliant blue-winged teal are on prairie habitat. Uh, explain that, and we'll get into the nesting a little bit and, and talk about that, but but blue wings are very, very specific about their nesting habitat. They are. They're very specific about their breeding distribution as well in terms of them being a closely, uh, a, very, a strongly prairie bird. Um when we look at breeding population survey data over the years, somewhere between 80 to 90 in some years north of 90% of the blue wings counted during, uh, during that May survey are going to be in, in, in the prairie regions, mm-hmm. either in the prairie regions of the Dakotas or in Canada. They're going to be most abundant, certainly here over the past 20 or so years in the Dakotas. That's their stronghold. We've certainly seen that since the mid-80s with CRP and a lot of the grass that it has put back on the landscape. Blue-wing teal have really benefited from it as well as the the abundant wetland conditions that we've been blessed with there in the Dakotas over the majority of those years. So, Dakotas are the stronghold for their uh, for their breeding populations. Saskatchewan's probably going to come in a close third, you might say, and and then of course Alberta and, and Manitoba is going to make up the difference. You're going to get about ten percent in the boreal forest during any average year. There may be a few more that overfly the prairies in in a drought year, but they're not likely to 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 do a lot of breeding there in the boreal forest. I find it unique that you know we have we're going to have a mallard specific show and, and mallards are so common. And, and I think most people know, you know, they can look at a mallard and see it, but they also, we have these resident mallards or, you know, that you see at the local parks and you see them breeding in people's backyards or whatever. But I find it unique that you never see a blue winged teal do that, you know, and that's because their breeding habitat is so specific to the prairies, um, which makes them, you know, so reliant on that habitat up there. It's, it's very, very cool. Um, when they are breeding, you know, kind of share a little bit of information about their nests. You know, how are they going in there building their nests and what makes them unique as far as, you know, their nest building in the prairies? We're going to provide just a variety of information here as we go through these species accounts. Some of it's going to seem a little basic to perhaps some folks, but then we're also wanting to provide that basic information for folks that may not be as familiar with the ecology of any of these species. And so let's just get started here with the basics of where these birds nest. They are ground nesters. They nest in upland areas. Blue-winged teal are, um, they they are closely associated with grasslands, nesting in upland grasses uh, of, of various types. 
they are, they're unlike, like when you look at, and we'll contrast them again with mallards as we kind of go through this on a couple of occasions. Mallards are just a great contrast to a lot of species because they are su- such a generalist, mallards being. Mallards will nest in odd places, right-of-ways, roadside ditches, and, and just shrubs and wherever mm. you can imagine that you'll probably find a mallard somewhere. Ditch mallard. Yeah. But, but blue wings are typically associated more with just these uh, grassy fields, upland uh, grasslands. They are one of the, we'll, we'll get into some of the migration ecology a little bit later on, but just from a breeding standpoint related to that, they are one of the last birds to arrive on the prairies. Yeah, they are one of the first to leave. They are one of the last to arrive. Um, they will start nesting probably you'll probably start seeing them arrive on the nesting uh, on on the breeding grounds in in uh, late April early May I think some of their peak nesting is going to be mid May like kind of on so an they have average a pretty short year. window they're going to have a short window um, they will uh, one of the consequences of that is that they are a species that has been documented to renest infrequently, uh, like mallards will re-nest up to five times. Uh, and I and I think s- there have been some studies that have documented nearly every mallard they are following, whether through some radio telemetry study, have tried to re-nest at least once. And I think in contrast, blue wings, I believe I recall seeing a study where a pro- only about a quarter of the hens, that blue wing hens that they were tracking actually attempted a re-nest. So they just don't have a lot of time because of their late arrival and their desire to get out of there early too. So it's a really compressed breeding window. Um, so that's a pretty interesting thing. Uh, in terms of what the nest bowl actually looks like and how that works, they find a preferred area where they want to nest, ideally within some proximity, close proximity to a wetland, a seasonal or temporary wetland or among their preferred wetland types whenever they arrive on the breeding grounds. And if they can find a suitable kind of grassy area in proximity to that, the hen will will go land in that area and then kind of walk a short distance to find a a nest site and will create a little scrape and start building a, a nest bowl, pulling the grass from around her. They do not transport material to the nest site, unlike what you see with passerines. Um, no species of waterfowl does that. No species of waterfowl will transport nesting material to the nest site. Oh, wow, they construct it from from material that's within sort of a, yeah. a bill's reach. That's and if, and if someone wants to get an idea of what a blue-winged teal nest actually looks like, um, a couple of years back, I worked with a group um, in our Great Plains region who was working with the University of North Dakota Research, and they were doing some nesting camera mm-hmm. thing, yeah. little videos. And so we pulled a bunch of those videos, and we have those on ducks.org. So if you go on ducks.org and you search nesting camera, uh, there's some pretty cool little examples. Of, you can see actual blue wings on the nest. Yeah. You can see them sitting in there. You can see them coming out and, and, and doing different things, um, even kind of poking at the nest as they're, as they're kind of building it up. So that, that's a good opportunity uh, for everyone out there to visit ducks.org and check out those those nesting camera videos. They're still on there. They are an abundant duck species there on the prairies. And we're going to get later on into some of the population status aspects of it. But uh, they are uh, there uh, and certainly over the past several years have been very, very high population levels. And uh, so 
finding blue winged teal nest in some of those prairie states and provinces has not been a big, it's not been much of a chore. Yeah. You know, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to find those. Um, what else about What's the What's the typical clutch size? Yeah. It's, it's at, that's another interesting piece based on various studies that, that, um, that I've looked at here recently, their clutch size tends to be a little bit larger than that of mallards. Mallards, you're going to be looking at about an average clutch size of nine. Blue-winged teal tend to have a slightly larger clutch size coming in around 10 on average. And that's going to vary a little bit. There's some indication that it might vary based on age and whether you're dealing with a, a first-year bird or a, a or an after first year bird, I guess that's the other thing that, that I'll say is they do nest in their first year and they're, you know, once that they hatch in year one. And then by the time they get around to the following spring and breeding season, they are nesting. That's unlike some of the longer lived species, sea ducks and, and certainly geese, if we want to broaden the conversation, they typically do not breed until two or three years of age, but blue wings are, uh, and most dabbling ducks are going to nest in their first summer. Um, they, yeah, so average clutch size of about 10 eggs. Um, so when these things hatch, the brood comes out of the egg, eggs, I should say. Um, what are they doing? What, are, what is this female duck doing the, when they hatch? Well, so the other thing before they hatch, they're incubated. Mm -hmm. So the other little tidbit here that I'll mention for blue wings, we'll probably do it for others as well. Whenever a female, this is sort of a insight on nesting ecology, whenever a hen creates that nest, she finds a nest site, starts to create the scrape, and she makes a decision at some point to start laying an egg. They lay on average one egg per day. Typically, they will go to that nest site in the morning and they will lay that lay an egg. And so incrementally, day after day, their clutch size increases one, one egg at a time until they reach whatever will be for them based on whatever kind of physiological triggers they have will be their terminal clutch size. And then the other kind of neat thing that happens as they progress through that laying stage, they gradually increase the length of time that they stay on that nest. Like whenever they're at egg number one or egg number two, they're on that nest for a short period of time, maybe an hour, hour and a half, two hours, somewhere in that ballpark. But then as they lay incrementally additional eggs, they will increase the amount of time that they're on their nest. And there's we can get someone on here to talk about the... Uh, incubation constancy and synchrony and synchrony mm -hmm. of hatching, that's an entirely uh, separate conversation that is really neat in itself, how these eggs are laid over different days over a course of about nine or 10 days, yet they all hatch within a, about six to 12 to 24 hours of one another. And there's yeah. some some kind of incubation control things going on there. We're going full duck nerd on we that are. episode. We, That's pretty <laughs> awesome. I like we that. We are. So let's see, where was I going there? We talked about, um, so- uh, I was asking kind of what they do once yeah, they hatch. Incubation, that's yeah. where I was going. Incubation um, length, uh, incubation, yeah. How, how yeah. long it takes to incubate. For blue-winged teal, they're, a, they're, they're able to- to hatch their eggs, incubate their eggs, incubate their eggs to hatch over a shorter period of time, about 24 days, 23, 24 days. Mallards, in contrast, are about 28 days. That's, again, the difference is there's probably a conversation for another episode and with someone smarter than I am. But so we're talking, talking about about 10 days to lay the eggs, 23 days, 24 days to incubate them to hatch. So that's about 34 days that these females are exposed to predation. 
then those little fluff balls all hatch synchronously, relatively synchronously within short period of time. And then all ducks are precocial. It's what we call precocial, meaning that the moment they hatch, they are able to move on their own. They're mobile on their own, and they are able to feed themselves independently of the of the uh, the parent. Uh, in in most duck species. We're talking about um, female parental care only. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the dad doing during the nesting? The dad's probably already gone um, at, at this at this point. The, the blue the blue wing teal do tend to. It's my understanding, blue wing teal males have a tendency to hang with the hmm. female through incubation a little bit longer than maybe some of the other ducks, and that may relate to the fact that they have a compressed window of time within which to. Uh, raise a, a brood, you know, that breeding opportunity may be fairly limited for the males. And so their best long-term strategy might have been to to hang with that female in case she does, in case in a random uh, or low probability event, she does decide to re-nest, he would want to be there yeah. for that. So, uh, but by mid-incubation uh, for blue wings, the males are probably going to have buggered off and will have gone on to wherever it is that they're going to start undergoing wing mold. They get a head start. This is it relates to some of the yeah. migration chronology. Adult males, um, the males in general, tending to be, uh, well, I should say adult males, second year males being the first that you would see migrating south. And that's why, because they've been kind of um, yeah, they we, no longer have any parental care responsibilities. Yeah. And we can get back into that. Um, but you know, you mentioned that these ducklings can feed themselves and, and we can, we can talk about that if you want to, but I was, I kind of wanted to transition into, um, what are some of the food habits of the, of blue wing teals? I mean, they're dabblers obviously. Um, but you know, as we transition from breeding into migration and wintering, that's kind of where I come in with the migration and wintering. Cause that's when they come down and you know, that's when, you know, they, they're under during hunting season. Yeah. And so I think, you know, some of our listeners out there, uh, while, you know, fascinated with the nesting chronology and all of that, um, the, information about, you know, what these birds are, are eating, you know, what they're keying in on, you know, even when they leave early, things like that throughout the season, that's some pretty beneficial information for hunters too. Sure. Uh, so kind of explain what these birds are eating and then we can get into the migration and, and the wintering. Yeah. So I guess to close out the breeding discussion, okay. the, the ducklings get to the wetland, we, that's an entire discussion itself about which wetlands they use and where they go and overland movements, all that kind of stuff. But it takes about 45 to 60 days, I think, for them to achieve flight. Oh, okay. Um, maybe a little bit on the short side of that. I'd have to refresh my memory to be exact, but uh, somewhere in that neighborhood, 40, 45, uh, 50 days to attain flight for blue wings. And, and so very then- very vulnerable at this time the, too. Absolutely, absolutely. And so then they start winging their way south. And so from a food habit standpoint, they're going to be similar to most dabbling duck species in that uh, most, most dabbling duck species- where they have a fairly flexible diet. And that diet and the, what makes up that diet is going to change as they go through the year. Blue-winged teal are classic, pretty classic omnivores, they're going to, which means they're going, to be, they're going to eat invertebrates, they're going to eat seeds, other plant matter. Uh, the importance of one versus the other is going to change over the course of the, of, of the annual cycle. And it also changes a little bit depending on whether you're talking about males or females. Um, 
as they get into that molting period where they're replacing their feathers, obviously they're going to need a lot of invertebrates to fuel the protein required to produce those feathers. But then as they start migrating, the big thing that they're looking for are carbohydrates. And this is this is true for for most uh, most all ducks and 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 geese that during that non-breeding period, they need carbohydrates to fuel their movements, their migration, their thermoregulation. And so that's going to come primarily in the form of various plant-based foods, seeds, tubers. Um, they'll eat the odd invertebrate here or there because they still have to um, you know, maintain a, a balanced diet, so to speak, and, and get all the other nutrients. Blueing teal are not classic field feeders, yeah. like in agricultural fields. I don't know what your experiences have been. I'll get your thoughts on that. But there have been a couple of studies documenting them eating a dry field feeding feeding on corn but that's not very common Pretty have rare. you what have you seen in i've not ever seen a really? dry field feeding like that um you know obviously arkansas rice you know we, I've, we've obviously seen them there but yeah. not not specifically dry field feeding yeah so then the other thing that happens as you get through as you go through the winter they're primarily still feeding on carbs they're actually one of the uh they're a a species that doesn't pair until the spring. Hmm. Uh, that's in contrast to mallards, gadwalls, pintails, which actually start pairing during fall and winter. Blue wings, uh, and this this kind of gets into a separate conversation that we don't want to get into the why that is, but there yeah. is a re- that's a really cool story in itself of why there are some differences in pairing and timing of pair bond development. Um, one of the one of the things just to say is it relates to the difference in size. Smaller birds, there's just not as much for them to gain by pairing early. So that's kind of the that that would be the most basic item related to an explanation there. So blue wings, you don't see pairing until they start back north during spring migration. And as you transition into that spring migration period, obviously they still need carbohydrates from seeds and other plant-based materials uh, to fuel the to to fuel that migration. At some point along the way, especially the females, they start transitioning to a more protein-based diet and, and a diet that's, more, that's richer in some of the essential nutrients and minerals that they need to produce the eggs. Eggs are incredibly protein-rich and protein-demanding items, mm-hmm. and so they have to get those resources somewhere. Mallards and some of the larger-bodied species, and especially geese, are large enough that they can transport to the breeding grounds nutrients and proteins that they've acquired on some of the wintering grounds, but blue wings are smaller in size and they're not really able to do that. So they 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 get a lot of their most of their nutrients for egg production uh, come whenever they are on the breeding grounds. Yeah. So okay. So that uh, and in terms of habitat types associated with that. It's mostly shallow water. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when we talk about what kind of habitat you want to look for for, for hunting blue-wing teal or conserving blue-wing teal. Certainly during the non-breeding period, we're talking sh- shallow, yeah. vegetated um, wetlands. Let's hit on the migration here um, because I think the one thing that really stands out to me with blue-wing teal is that, you know, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, these birds are leaving the breeding ground. They're the first ones out. And what time of year is that typically? Well, they will start on average, you're going to start to see birds leave the prairies in August. Uh, I would imagine the big movements are going to start occurring in uh, late August, September, 
certainly once you get in September, you're going to start seeing some big movements. You'd probably see some birds start moving in August, late August. And they kind of hopscotch down. You know, they kind of bounce from the prairies. They're we think so. We think around. so. We're actually going to be getting some really good information here over the next few years from some of these GPS telemetry studies that are ongoing. But yeah, that's, that's, I've seen, I've seen kind of mixed reports on that, that in some cases we think they travel long distances. In other cases, maybe they just kind of hopscotch on the Mm -hmm. way down. I'll be honest. I don't, I don't know for certain. And the, it is kind of exciting to look forward to the data that we're going to get from some of those GPS marked birds. I, I suspect there are a lot of folks out there that already have that information that can tell us, well, yeah, they actually do hopscotch or no, they actually go uh, take long flights. Uh, I, I don't really know, is the, is the, to be yeah. honest and, and, and factual there. I know for me here, um, you know, in the office, we always have a pretty good discussion in you know, late August, early September, um, a couple blue winged teal will always show up at the pond here yeah. at VU. And that gets everyone fired up. Yeah. You know, it's our first sign. They're of the vanguard. Mi- yeah, it's that first sign of migration. Um, and as we progress through the September teal seasons, you know, from the Great Lakes all the way down, you know, to South, South Texas, um, I constantly am getting reports on on the kind of the pace of the migration. And I always find it interesting that some of these hunters down in Texas and and South Louisiana, you know, they're like, oh, the the adults, you know, the adult males are here. And, you know, it kind of explain how that progression, you touched on it briefly, but explain the progression of, of when the adult males, you know, when they start showing up down in South Louisiana, if there's a bunch of them, that's great. But these guys still know, hey, there's more to come. That's right. And that relates to what we were talking about earlier with regard to female parental, mm-hmm. female biased parental care. Um, the males are... Um, yeah, do not have any parental care responsibilities. And so once that female gets into about mid-incubation, they head off and and begin their wing molt and they will be, then they'll complete their wing molt first and their agenda is to go ahead and head south. So that's why you see the males, adult males, uh, not the young males produced in, in that year, but the adult males that have been produced in a previous year will be the first one south. And the other thing that you might see, and this was going to be interesting to see how it plays out in a year like this, 2021, where we have a pretty severe drought on the prairies, there's not going to be as much nesting. You're going to be reduced nesting effort by those females. Uh, and I asked Scott Stevens this this question a little while ago, Will he? what does he expect to see in terms of the male-female ratio in his uh, in his bag up in Canada mm-hmm. as he's harvesting these birds in September. And he said, yeah, that's a good question. It's a good point because what you might expect with reduced nesting efforts, you might expect there to be a larger number of females that are joining those males in that early, early wing mold period. Yeah. And so then they would then get a head start. And so hunters at the southern end of the flyway, if you start seeing a a, a larger percentage of hens along with that first push of males than you typically do, that's likely to be a signal that that corroborates our, you know, well, we know there's going to be reduced nesting effort on the prairies, right, this year. Um, but if you see that this year, that's probably what's going on there is those yeah. females got a head start because they just didn't nest or they made one attempt and that was it. So, uh, and then it re- it takes the birds, the young birds produced this year a little bit longer, of course, to, to grow and attain flight and then get out of there. So that's responsible for that transition, uh, that, that chronology and migration. And the reason you don't see that with, 
some of the other species is because they're all kind of still hanging up, hanging around up north like mallards and pintails and widgeon and gadwall. They're not as eager to get so far south. So that signal is not as pronounced yeah. once they start migrating south. And you mentioned this and, and we can go back into kind of the harvest side of things, go back to the actual teal seasons. Um, but before we do that, you mentioned, you know, they, they're getting that head start because they have to go f- so far south. Where are these blue-winged teal actually wintering? That's a good question. And I, it reminds me that one of the things we should do is talk about the back up and talk about the distribution from a, from a breeding standpoint. Now, I ta- I did mention that they're strictly a prairie, for the most part, strictly a prairie bird. We heard in an earlier episode last year from Casey Seatash, a graduate student out of Colorado State, Stud that has studied cinnamon teal in some of her previous years. And she was talking with us about how the, the cinnamon teal and blue-winged teal are so closely related. And the neat thing is that east of the Rockies, it's 90% blue wings. You know, that's where most of the blue wings are uh, and very few to the west of the Rockies. And the west of the Rockies, it's mostly cinnamon teal. So that's, I think those two species are very closely related and th- yet their distribution is pretty... It's pretty divided mm-hmm. there. Blue wings to the east and cinnamons to the west there of the Rockies. And so that carries through with the uh, with, with what we see in the winter distribution. So blue wings are primarily a species that you're going to find east of the Rockies in winter. Some of their most important uh, wintering grounds are going to be the coastal marshes of Louisiana, Texas, and Florida, and some of those southern states, there's actually an interesting uh, reference that you'll find if you study much about blue-winged teal. You'll find reference to the idea that prior to the mid-50s, blue-wing, not many blue-winged teal wintered in the U.S. in uh, in the central or Mississippi flyway. And mm-hmm. Hurricane Audrey in 1957 is cited as an event that changed that by opening up some of those marshes in South mm. Louisiana. Uh, that That's just kind of an interesting nugget that you read yeah. about. And uh, th- I've always found that a bit surprising. Uh, now, I have to believe that there had been blue-wing teal wintering in coastal Texas prior to that. But, I, you know, it's just, anyway, a little interesting tidbit there that something changed. Um, Hurricane Audrey opened up some marshes there in 1957 that obviously had a noticeable effect on the number of blue wings that we saw wintering. Uh, in in the U.S. and so yeah, it's uh, as as you go through that migration period, you're going to find blue wings all across the eastern U.S. Uh, Mississippi and Central Flyway is where they're going to be most numerous, and then of course Florida supports some, and then they will continue farther south into Mexico, uh, Central America, South America. Uh, the Yucatan Peninsula supports a couple of million blue-winged teal a year, I think, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, some of the marshes around the T- Tabasco Lagoons, Alvarado Lagoons can support hundreds of thousands of blue-wings. And then you can actually get down into uh, Colombia and, and um, Brazil and Nicaragua and other areas like that that will support. Uh, and the Caribbean supports mm-hmm. a large number as well. Our, our handle on that... I, I want to say that some recent estimates from eBird, uh, based on eBird observations, re- suggest that about a quarter of the of the blue winged teal population remains in the U.S. during winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but seventy five percent of them go south; they well, get out of here. Yeah. So I know just the last couple of years, you know, the uh, uh, some of the hunters along the coast, Louisiana and Texas, that I've talked to, uh, they've yeah. they're bagged 
have remained pretty pretty steady with blue wings throughout the season. Yeah, that is true. I think we are seeing an increase in the number of blue wings that are staying here. Uh, it'll be interesting to track that as we go forward to see if uh, if that percentage increases. You know, from the from, because uh, s- seemingly it has. If you look back to the '50s, some of what you what you read, and now we look at, at some indications that we have several hundred thousand or a million or so blue wing teal wintering in the U.S. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, and do, and do you have any of that data that, that that's kind of shows what the percentage of the harvest uh, is made up of blue wings? Uh, yeah, percentage of the heart. Well, I don't have overall like percentage of total harvest made up. Yeah, but blue wings. What I can, what I do have is like how does that harvest? How's that harvest distributed? And it's. Uh, about 60% of that occurs in the Mississippi flyway. When you look mm-hmm. at total harvest for blue wing teal, on average, about 60% of that occurs in the Mississippi flyway. Um, and then about 35 or so percent of that occurs in the central flyway and then the remaining 5% in the Atlantic flyway. Uh, so in terms of harvest level, what that what that amounts to is about a million birds annually um, it, over the early teal season and regular duck season combined, you're looking at a harvest of, of blue wings of about a million mm-hmm. a year, somewhere okay. in that neighborhood. Yeah. Harvest rates are pretty low for blue wings. I'm actually, um, I'm a little reluctant to, to cite what that harvest rate would be, but I, it's going to be less than 5%. You know, yeah. you think, compare that with, it may even be lower than that. Um, if you compare that to mallards as, as, as a good reference point, uh, we see harvest rates for adult male mallards of around 11, 12%. Some of the juvenile harvest rates can go up a little bit higher than that. But uh, blue wings are certainly at the low end of the spectrum in terms of harvest, partly because they do get out of the U.S. Yeah, so they quickly. Disappear. I mean, know, I, so. I know that it's pretty rare, you know, Arkansas and even North Mississippi where I hunt, uh, Tennessee. If someone shoots a blue wing during regular duck season, it's pretty rare. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it's happened. I mean, yeah. we've seen it, um, but it is it is a pretty rare occurrence. Um, you know, a, as far as population, have we been in the blue wing heyday? You know, it, to say necessarily, I mean, I guess it's tough. To, everyone talks about the good old days, yeah. you know, but really, I mean, the last few years, maybe even the last decade, um, thanks to, you know, precipitation in the prairies and even the U.S. side of the prairies too, um, blue wings have really done well. Yeah, no doubt. They have They have actually for many years here in recent memory been the second most abundant uh, duck mm-hmm. in North America on, behind only the mallard. Uh, in 2012, there were about 9.2 million blue wings estimated in the, uh, during the, the spring breeding survey. That was the record high for most of the most of the past ten or so years. We're looking at uh, average breeding population size of you know probably around six or seven million. So even among on average over probably the past twenty or so years, they have been the second most abundant duck species in North America. No doubt beneficiary of CRP and very good wetland conditions in the Dakotas. Um, so yeah, the, these are great times for blue wings. Actually, the last time we had data on blue wings, and I remember us talking about this with Dr. Tom Mormon, their population had dropped for uh, a couple of years, consecutive years. Their population was 5.4 million. So, you know, we had been seeing a, uh, we had been seeing a, a, a slight dip 
And that's not necessarily unexpected when we were beginning to see some drier conditions on the Canadian prairies. Um, so yeah, 5.5 million was the last time we counted them. We probably, ex well, we know we had good production out of the Dakotas last year. Mm -hmm. Since I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what our population estimate would have been coming into this year for, for blue wings, but it would have, um, I don't know, probably six and a half million if I had to kind of handicap it. So not too far off what our average would have been over the past 10 or so years. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, that's good news right now. You yeah. Know, it, yeah. It would mean that we came into this year, 2021, with still a pretty healthy blue wing teal population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's good news for this September for these guys, you know, uh, as far as hunting goes, um, you know, where I grew up in Indiana, they're pretty hard to hunt and we did it and we, you know, we shot birds, but you know, some of those mid latitude States, um, are tough because those birds are, are there one day gone the next. And yeah. so you, you don't have a, a pretty steady number of birds kind of hanging around. Well, then once I moved down here and I started hunting down in Louisiana, um, I've hunted down in Texas as well. Um, that's, that's where it's at for those early blue wing seasons. And it's, that's the bread and butter for some of those guys. Absolutely. And so a question for you, we've talked a lot and will continue to do so about the effect, the different, several different effects of, uh, of, of drought on a, on a fall flight and reduced productivity and what it's going to mean that for hunters and what they're likely to encounter and a lot of adult birds in the population. Mm -hmm. Well, we expect a lot of adult blue wing teal in the population this, this fall as well. But, and so what we say for mallards and pintails and others is that those adults are really hard to decoy. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you find adult blue wings to be any you know, more savvy than let's say the, the young ones. Is it discernible? Because we talk about kind of the early season, you're going to be shooting mostly adults. And if we saw, um, if we saw blue wings that were more decoy shy or more educated, that's when we would see it. But my, what's your experience yeah, there? I, I don't think so. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think so. And a lot of this is based off of, uh, again, a conversation I've had with Tom Mormon mm. um, regarding green wing teal. Yeah. And why those green wing teal just attack decoy spreads. You know, it's like you have these big balls of green wings. They just dive in. And this is, you know, late season in Arkansas. Uh, I think blue wings are very similar. Um, you don't have to have these great big spreads. You don't have to have, you know, this, uh, because the way Tom explained it to me is these birds are flying a little bit lower and their eyesight is not quite as good at that low altitude. And so they're just buzzing in, you know, they're not, it's not like a big fat mallard sitting up there eyeballing your spread, looking for one decoy that's turned over. And I've seen that before. Um, these things are coming in fast. They're coming in low. Um, just the way that they approach the habitat as they come into land is a little bit different. So, you know, an adult blue wing versus an adult mallard, I would not, you know, I wouldn't say that it's going to, they're, they're more savvy. Yeah. You know, I guess that's a good way to put it. But so the other thing that I'll say in regard to that, and I don't know if I mentioned this here, but it relates to survival rate of mm -hmm. these birds, of blue wings. It, it does relate to this observation of uh, of them being more susceptible to de or not as wary of decoys. There was a study out in California that looked to see if there were any correlations between what they deemed to be sort of a, an index of risk taking behavior by different duck species 
and see if they could find any correlation between that risk-taking behavior and where ducks fell along this spectrum of of kind of reprodu- of life history. Yeah. Like blue wings are at one end of the gradient where they have low annual survival rates. Their annual survival rates are somewhere between 40 and 50%. And we've already talked about how they have really low harvest rates. So that low survival rate is not at all driven by harvest. We're talking harvest less than probably well less than 5%. Um, So it's just, they have high annual mortality. And as as a result of that, one of the things that we see is high annual uh, recruitment. It's like if if birds have high annual mortality, they're also likely to be birds that have high annual recruitment rates. And you kind of contrast that at the other end of the spectrum with let's say canvas backs, they, they have higher annual survival, they live longer, they have lower annual reproductive output, and uh, some of those birds are going to be more wary. Now, canvasbacks may not be because we're talking about a diving duck, but if we're talking about a dabbling duck, mallard would be a good one to contrast. They are more wary, and mm-hmm. it kind of relates to some of their life history strategies there. But um, yeah, blue wings are a, uh, that, that observation relates to the life history of it and it being a bird that is, takes a lot of risks. Yeah. Um, because it, and it kind of has to, to per- perpetuate itself because um, it's just, it just does not have a high survival rate to begin with. They tend to have a pretty high survival rate around most duck blinds because, <laughs> you know, it, for some reason, and I can't figure this out, but if for some reason people always say, oh, the blue wings are so hard to hit or whatever, um, you know. They are that. They they're are. acrobatic. Yeah, they're, they're acrobatic. But in reality, they're not really that fast. And I think that's one thing for hunters this season to, to remember is a lot of those birds are not moving nearly as fast as what you think. And um, it is a small target. You know, it will kind of pitch and yaw and spin around on you. You know, they're, they're very acrobatic. Um, but I think the biggest issue that people have with hitting, actually hitting blue wings is the big ball of birds yeah, that comes right. in. Oh, yeah. Pick a target. You got to be careful. Yeah, you got to be careful, especially as you get close to that bird number six. You know, you got to be real that's selective. Right. You right? have to. You have to pick a target, <laughs> and that's you know. And, and a lot of times, people miss everything yeah. because they're not picking a target. And we've done entire shows with Phil Berzelli about that, about really zeroing in on a target. And uh, so that's. Just, I guess that's my uh, my little tip for uh, blue wing hunters out there is make sure you pick your target. That's a good one. What else do we need to cover? Do we table fair. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the top tears in my book. Um, You know, we had Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois and he was talking about how awesome it is for, he just literally plucks them and is cooking them, you know, on his way out of the duck blind sometimes. So um, remember that, take, take that into account, even on, especially on those hot days. Yeah. Sometimes you have to bring a cooler for them. You know, it's good to get those birds cooled off. Yeah. Um, Don't take any chances with that, but, but really focus in and, and really work on some culinary um, work on your culinary skills with the blueing teal because it's a great bird to eat. Very good. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Hopefully I'll get some this year. All right, Mike. Thanks a lot. This has been fantastic. You bet. I enjoyed it, Chris. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, for talking blue wing teal with us today. I'd like to thank Clay Baird, our producer, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the DU Podcast and supporting Wellens Conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. 
Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.